0: A DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Poster Text. Poster Text designs posters for book lovers. They're made entirely out of text. You stand up close to the poster, you can read the text of your favorite books. You move away from the poster... You see the words coalesce into beautiful imagery, beautiful artwork. Do you understand? Go to postertext.com and check it out. And right now you can get a 20% discount on the podcast. Just enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE14. That's O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L-14. Get a 20% discount. These posters are a great conversation starter. You hang them up in your home, in your office, and uh, they're also a great holiday gift idea. Poster text. .com. These are posters made of text. Go and get one. Oh, my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid
0: thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. <laughs> Gee, stated what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing.
0: Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is no longer climate controlled. This may include ambient sound. How are you? What's up? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles in my freezing cold garage, uh, which could be a temporary arrangement. I don't know about this. It's uh, It's been raining. It sort of leaks in here. It's kind of wet and uh, cold. It smells bad. Uh, the lighting is bad. Everything's bad. You might hear some cars, et cetera. I'm in negotiations right now to be able to return to the uh, main building. <laughs> Got to talk to my wife. Got to figure it out. Got to see if there's space for me and my microphones in the house. But for now, I'm in the garage. We're on a once-a-week schedule. Uh, that's a shift. I hope that's going okay for you guys. I haven't heard too much. I assume it's okay. Most of you probably only listen once a week anyway. Is that right? I know there's some of you out there who are uh, every, every episode gung-ho. But uh, for now, for the time being... Once a week, that's the schedule uh, I got a lot of shit going on I got to figure out my stuff Get situated Moving is a pain in the ass In case you uh, forgot I had forgotten just how much of a pain in the ass it is How much work there is I'm still unpacking Things still aren't uh, figured out We still got to get furniture The place still feels in, trans- you know, in transition So uh, thank you for bearing with me I have a great show for you today I have uh, some great shows coming up for you too So my guest is Lynn Lurie She's got a new novel out from Etruscan Press It's called Quick Kills And uh, it, was great. it was a great talk with her I uh, really enjoyed it You're going to hear that in a minute I do want to share a story uh, Before we get going with the interview I, uh, I tweeted about this And I've been telling everybody about it In my day-to-day life Anybody I can find I tell them this story Because it was uh, genuinely weird It happened the night that I was packing up My old apartment uh, it was an exhausting process. I was up until three or four in the morning filling up boxes, taping boxes, labeling boxes, throwing stuff away, realizing how much shit uh, my wife and I had uh, you know had accumulated over the years, which is always a little bit unsettling. So uh, in the middle of the night, about one o'clock in the morning, I ran out of trash bags and uh, yeah, I couldn't really continue without trash bags. So I was sitting there in my apartment it's one in the morning and I'm thinking to myself I either go to bed. And I deal with this in the morning or I go get trash bags now. And I was sort of in the zone where I decided to go get trash bags now because I didn't want to stop. I wasn't going to like end it unfinished. I wanted to get as far as I could go and then go to bed. So I leave my apartment. It's one in the morning. Uh, It's a little sketchy in my neighborhood. Not too, you know, not too terrible, but kind of sketchy. You don't want to be walking around at one in the morning if you can avoid it. So uh, there I am. I'm tired, physically uh, depleted. Wandering up to the uh, grocery store, the 24-hour grocery, to get some trash bags and uh, feeling uh, like a zombie. And as I'm walking in, I'm crossing the parking lot. uh, A a man, uh, I believe he was on crack cocaine or he was mentally ill or both. Uh, He passed by me. I thought he was approaching me, but I don't even know if he saw me. Very sad situation. He was uh, just bug-eyed and crazy and talking to himself. Sort of zombie-like. Very much Walking Dead-like. So, that happened. I go into the grocery store, very fluorescently lit. uh, Weird. It's a weird time to be in a grocery store. Middle of the night like that. 24-hour grocery in the, you know, the dirty heart of Los Angeles. You see some stuff. So, I go in there. I think it's going to be a quick in and out. But, of course, there's only one register. There's only one register open at that hour. So, you know, there's 10 people in line. Waiting to check out at this one register. The self-checkout, closed. You got to wait in line. So I'm waiting in line. Almost everybody in line is sketchy. Me included. (laughs) And I've got these trash bags. And uh, it's all I want. I got 70, you know, like a box of like what? 75 trash bags or something like that. And I'm waiting in line. And uh, it's weird because I felt like everybody was too close together in the line. There wasn't a lot of personal space. So I'm kind of staring at the People magazine in the rack and the Us Weekly, like just trying to find something to distract myself. And the cashier uh, is a strange Los Angeles character. If you live here, if you've ever spent time here, he would probably be familiar to you. Uh, Guy working as a a cashier on the night shift in a grocery store, 24 hours. He was uh, a black guy, flamboyantly gay, mustache, very theatrical, having the time of his life. That's all I can say He was very cheerful He had uh, very long fingernails It was just sort of weird That he was that uh, chipper You know But you know Bless him Good for him He was finding a way uh, To see the light In the situation Anyway uh, There I am I'm about like Second in line There's a guy in front of me And then it's me And uh, as we're standing there This this guy Returns uh, To the store He comes back in from the outside if that makes any sense so I'm standing in the checkout line I'm near the conveyor belt uh, I see the doors slide open and a man about my age returns to the store holding a a glass bottle of brown liquid and uh, he says uh, he walks back up to the uh, cashier and he says hey this was in my bag I didn't buy this this wasn't mine and he sets it on the uh, you know on the counter And he just turns around and walks out. He wasn't in a great mood. And so, you know, this is all happening very quickly. Uh, The cashier's in the middle of ringing up someone else. So this guy kind of interrupted us. And uh, he said, listen, you know, this isn't isn't mine. I didn't buy this. And then he, you know, he put the the jar of, uh, or the bottle of brown liquid on the counter near the conveyor belt. Turns around, walks out. And the cashier calls out. Theatrically, uh, thank you for your honesty, you know, like that. And uh, as he said this, I was trying to process what was going on. And, uh, you know, it could be <laughs> because in Los Angeles, in the middle of the night, uh, some guy walks into a grocery store with a bottle of brown liquid. You don't know what it could be. That's the truth. You don't know what it could be. But, uh, you know, so. The, the cashier calls out thank you for your honesty and uh, I, I look at the man leaving he walks out again the cashier is waving to him I look down on the counter at the uh, bottle and it is a bottle of iced tea and the brand name is Honest Tea if that, do, you, do you understand what happened here? so I'm standing there in a kind of a zombie trance fully exhausted from moving for hours packing boxes for hours and this guy returns puts a bottle on the counter leaves the cashier calls out thank you for your honesty i look down and it's a bottle of honest tea so i have a decision to make i'm standing there in line like 10 other people everyone's exhausted no one really wants to talk to anyone but i've just seen something very unusual and i feel like maybe i should share this with everyone maybe i should stop and say hey guys time out do you realize that uh, this very uh very uh stati- you know statistically unlikely accidental verbal pun just happened in our presence it's cosmically uh, significant possibly thank you for your honesty. So I'm sitting there wrestling with this. Do I say something under normal circumstances in broad daylight, uh, I would have said something. But on this evening, uh, in the depths of this particular night, in the condition that I was in, I said nothing. I internalized it. It was just me who noticed. The cashier was not in on the joke. There was no intent in what he was saying. Pure coincidence. Thank you for your honesty. So that happened, and you know, like probably it was the right thing to do. Say nothing. I I don't know how I would have. I don't know how I would have, you know, uh, transferred that information to the people I was in line with. Kind of audience I would have had, they would have appreciated the uh, magnitude what I uh, bore witness to. Sleep deprivation heighten the effect too. That should be said. Honesty. It's very weird. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, My guest, once again, is Lynn Lurie. Her novel is called Quick Kills. It's out there now from Etruscan Press. Uh, I had a really good time talking with her. Uh, She's a really good guest. You guys are going to like this one. This is Lynn Lurie. Her novel is called Quick Kills.
1: So I am in a friend's apartment um, in the same building where I live, and it is a... We are on the Upper West Side, and it's kind of a a drecky building, even though they think that they're on Park Avenue, so you're not allowed to have – they're very restrictive about your pets. So the minute I walk in, I'm greeted by a a cockatoo, a tortoise, um, a a turtle, like the really big kind, and a dog that, like, fits in your pocket so you can get it outside without getting caught. So I'm very happy here. Oh wow! Moment.
0: Okay, so like you can't have pets in the building, but they have they have a turtle, which is a quiet pet. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it, but, it's you know it's pretty big actually. It takes up a lot of space.
0: Like what are we talking? Is this like a sea turtle? What do they have? What do we? You know? so we
1: have a sea turtle. There's a sea turtle floating around in an aquarium. <laughs> which is actually, pretty amazing. Yeah. And then there's a tortoise, which is the kind of, that goes on land, or in this particular case, you know, parquet floor. And he has a pretty big box. Um, I'm really bad at like these kind of things, but it's probably five feet by five feet his box and um he's actually delightful like you can actually stroke his shell and his neck comes out and he's actually very sweet like you definitely can get him to respond to you so he's delightful
0: i'm, I'm always surprised about new yorkers and their pets because it seems like such, a, <laughs> like such a hard it's a hard city to have animals in but people do it people don't care they love their animals
1: Well, we live with lots of pets. I mean, I look out the window and all I see are rats. Um, So, you know, we like to sort of pretend that there's others that we can live with as opposed to the ones that we can live without. Um, But, yeah, we have, like, little secret places for our pets. Um, And then when we really can't have them, we we revert to, like, our kids' stuffed animals and stuff.
0: (laughs) So how long have you lived in New York City?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I have lived here mentally for my entire life. Um, but I had to have a long hiatus outside of the city. Um, Well, I I went to college here, and I went to university here, and then I joined the Peace Corps, so I was in Ecuador for a long time. That was fabulous. And then I migrated to Peru, which was even more fabulous. Then I came back, spent some time in New York, and had two children, which you cannot raise in New York City unless you have a lot of money. So we had to move to New Jersey, which was pretty hellish um, for me, especially for 15 years. And then as soon as the last kid left the house, actually before the year before she left, um, she was basically living out of her car in the suburbs because we sold the house. And we had already moved back to the city. So I have been living here now for like four years, which is great.
0: Okay. So, yes, I mean, as soon as you could, you were back there.
1: Actually, before soon because she really literally lived out of her car. Cause I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't stand it another. You know, like I couldn't manage another year. Um, so,
0: wait, yeah. are you from New York originally?
1: I, oh my! I grew up in a in a really dreadful suburb of New York City, um, and um, so sort of we recreated that. Like when we moved to New Jersey, I mean, not quite. It wasn't like the same level of affluence, but it was the same level of of, um, what are we, I mean, basically when I dumped everything in the dumpster before we left, I was crying because I had never in 15 years had one friend in this suburb except my kids. So, um, I sort of recreated where I had grown up, which was why I think it became particularly hellish towards the end. And then I lived in New York all the other times when I had the option of to where I was going to live. So, um... Yes, I am very much a New Yorker, even though I don't necessarily write New York stories,
0: but you know it's interesting, too to hear you talk about not having any friends uh, in oh. <laughs> in that suburb because it's hard you know i've I've come to this as an adult, and it's been like a hard lesson, but it's hard to make friends as an adult, good friends, you know
1: it's very hard, and i I do think where you are, if you're not you know physically mentally comfortable with the place, it becomes impossible because. Well, in my case, I I just became so reclusive. I didn't even leave the house, you know, um, except to do, like, the things you had to do with the kids. Um, But, yes, it's more difficult regardless. But at least if you live in a place where you are comfortable, I'm a little bit more outgoing here because I'm happy here.
0: Right. Well, and the thing, too, is, like, I mean, I don't want to sound too uh, neurotic about it, but it can be hard, I think, as you get to be, uh, you know, an adult and you learn a little bit about people and the way that yes. the world works. It can sometimes be hard to let yourself trust people and to to kind of assume the best of people as opposed to assuming the worst of people.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know. Well am, I, am
0: I projecting? Am I projecting?
1: No, that? no. Unfortunately, I think it's it's really it is indeed the case. Um, and maybe maybe it's protection, but I think it's also the. And I'm probably way older than you are the older you get, you also sort of realize you don't really have time to make ridiculous conversation and you don't want to, and you almost sort of don't have to anymore. So in a sense, it's a freedom, but yes, I do occasionally yearn for like the good conversation. And as I said, I'm sitting in my friend's apartment and, and, you know, she is like my good friend in New York. I only have about two, so um, that's about it.
0: Yeah, how many do you need, though? You know, like like that's I.
1: Think, that's it. Yeah, you really don't. You don't. Um, you and, need, and I like, guess until they start dropping. I
0: was going to say you need like one good one and then a backup. Exactly. <laughs> and then as you get older, like I've always I've often thought about this, or not, you know, not too often, but it has crossed my mind from time to time, where I'm thinking about my life in a long term, pers- you know, in a long term way. Like if I'm fortunate enough to live a long life, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be elderly and decrepit and inward and cut off and deteriorating, if I can help it, I would like to still be vibrant as long as I possibly can. And I think that being social is a key component of that. And like having a vibrant social life and, you know, kind of acting young as opposed to getting cut off and and feeling like, you know, it all, or getting super cynical, like it's hard to do, but I've kind of thought like, how do I stay connected to people in a way that feels uh, rich and authentic uh, and that would keep me, you know, young and keep me mentally sharp. Do you ever think about stuff like that? <laughs> or am, am I overdoing it? I mean, I'm... I,
1: I think I think you're overdoing it, but I definitely don't think I can give you advice on this because I'm probably going to be the reclusive one who doesn't leave the room. <laughs> so I'm not the right person to ask. I mean, the only thing I can say is that there is hope that the people that you've accumulated on the way. Remain alive and intact and and they will sustain you, but you know in terms of like going out and um, meeting people at that particular age, it sounds like it could be really quite dreadful um but but that's me because I think going out and meeting anybody at any age is dreadful, but somehow you know the older one gets it seems even more frightening I feel like old um, pe- I
0: feel like old people always volunteer at the hospital. I think that's why they do it I'll go volunteer at the hospital, and you know my, yeah. grand- my grandmother did that and um. Yeah,
1: I mean, I always really am nice to the people, like, at the museum that are volunteers, you know, who tell you where the bathroom is and stuff, and they give you the floor plan and, like, orient you when you're lost, because I feel like, you know, this is really laudable that they got themselves out and they're trying, Um, but I'm not sure I could do that, so that's why I'm telling you don't ask me for advice on this thing. (laughs)
0: I'll just call you up in a, you know a few years or however. <laughs> I'll years.
1: just tell you what I'm doing and then yeah. you just do the opposite. Yeah. You'll be fine.
0: How's your turtle, Lynn? How's your pet turtle? You hanging out with your turtle? Is that what's happening?
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's interesting. I don't I mean I, and I say all of this, so who knows if I'll actually be able to execute and deliver on what I'm hoping for, but it's just I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too far into the future. That tends to be
1: Yeah, I wouldn't really worry about it yet. Okay. I, I think you probably have way bigger things to worry about right now. I yeah. could point out a few of those things if you want me to.
0: Yeah. No, I'm going to table that for now. I'm going, to ta- okay. I'm going to table how to handle my 90s for now.
1: Yeah, I would hold off on that one. Okay.
0: Okay, good. So let's get back to you. So you, uh, you grew up in Jersey. Uh, you I say-
1: didn't grow up in Jersey. I grew up in Westchester, which is even worse.
0: Okay. so in Westchester is like a pretty uh, bougie, Oh, yeah. It's, like a tony,
1: it's a Tony Stepford Wife kind of place. Yes.
0: Yeah. All right. So uh, your folks did well?
1: Um, yeah, my father was um, my father w- was is a lawyer, um, a fairly odious human being, um, I would say. Um, I like the word. Od-
0: I like the word odious. And I'm sorry that your father was odious, but I, li- I do like the usage.
1: It's a really good word for him. I really hate to say that, um, but yes. And so, so we had some money, but um, my parents were also very penurious, so that we didn't really ever enjoy it. But we did live looking like we had it but no one ever had fun with it which is really tragic in my opinion
0: yeah so what your dad was a lawyer and you guys just didn't i mean didn't get along
1: um my father as i said was pretty odious um yeah he's um how can i describe him briefly um I, i i would say he's he's not an alcoholic but he has that sort of a temperament, which in, in what I mean is that you would never know when he was going to be absolutely enraged by something that you said or did. Um, so you were sort of always, you know, at the edge of the chair um, for his rage. Um, and he um, was hardly, and I'm sure you as a parent aren't even going to be able to understand this because I certainly am not as a parent, but he was extremely... Extremely competitive, especially with me for some reason. Um, It was just a very, very unpleasant place to grow up. He and my mother did not like each other, although they stayed married forever. Um, They never got divorced. Um, Oddly, I will say, I I did go to law school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's a little pathology there. Uh, So what about you? did you Did you
0: have siblings or were you an only?
1: Uh, no, I have an older sister who, who's pretty much um, a lost soul, on like the fifth alcoholic husband, and then I have a younger brother who sort of mimics my dad. So I'm not really close to my family, um, which is also why I probably can't give you any ideas on what it's like to be 80. That in, in a sense of what <laughs> you'd want to what you'd want to model yourself after. <laughs> Just, uh, so I feel, I mean, I'm not an old, only child, but I don't see my sister. I'll see her maybe once every two years. Um, my brother lives closer. He lives in Connecticut. So I'll see him like once a year, which is pretty bad if if you're, you know, pretty close.
0: So, but you, but you, uh, well-educated. I mean, you did well enough in, in school to go on to uh, Columbia. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And you yeah. Be- you
0: became a lawyer. Like you got through... Um, despite these difficulties? It's not like it it completely... Because sometimes people come up against family stuff like that, and um, I think it can be difficult to overcome. But you...
1: Yeah, no, I definitely survived it, and I I think... I I don't really quite know exactly why. Um, I think it was knowing, and I don't even know how I knew this because they didn't treat me as if this was the case, but I sort of knew that I wasn't stupid. um, And so... Um, I think that that really got me very far. I also think what got me far in the family that I grew up was they were, they are extremely narcissistic and I was ugly. I was like an ugly kid. So I kind of knew like I wasn't going to be able to do what my mom did, which was, you know, which not that one would want to do that anyway, but that I needed to sort of educate myself in order to be able to, to live and to care of myself. And so the only thing that I think I really did focus on was hiding in my books and and hoping that I really wasn't stupid. And, you know, it turned out that those things served me very, very well. Possibly if I grew up in a different family, I I would not have gravitated to those things. I don't really know.
0: So you, you retreated into books at a young age?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, that was really all I did.
0: And what were the? I didn't, I mean, did, were, see, were I didn't any, have any the, either.
1: The, okay, I'm so, really prolific. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, my books were my friends.
0: And what about uh, like Touchstone books? Like, what were some big ones for you when you were a kid?
1: Well, you know, I, I have to say, oh, because my father was really, really right wing, um, I was very early on. I just thought, like, you know, John Steinbeck was amazing because he took on like Indubious Bottle was like a favorite of mine. And then, you know, of human bondage with divine. Um, What else did I love as a kid? Oh, my, I grew up in the time when people read Herman Hesse. I never understood it then, which I think is to my credit. Um, But I don't really, I can't say what they're about. I've never revisited them. And I tried reading them and didn't like it. I remember reading A Portrait of the Artist as a young man when I was, um, you know, probably like 15 and not quite getting it, but kind of thinking there's something here that I I could really like at a later moment. Catcher in the Rye, of course. So those were the sort of biblical books I had.
0: And then, so what are you like? Because i got to imagine, you know, you have, uh, you know, a difficult, like, family life. It's hard to trust and know who, you know, especially with the older people in your life. Um, and then you go to school and you're trying to be social, it doesn't sound like you um, did much of that. Like, as an adolescent, were you pretty much a loner, or did you have some friends?
1: I was pretty much a loner. I had um, one friend who sort of was nearby, but we would just get high together all the time. So I wouldn't... I mean, actually, that's not entirely true. I mean, we sort of were good friends to one another, and I recently did make contact with her again. So I feel like she was a very good... um, sort of safety net in, in, in the suburbs and in that sort of morass of, of, of nothingness. and um, Well, hey, and if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if
0: you're in a suburban morass of nothingness and there's difficulties at home, there's something to be said for your teenage friend with whom you smoke joints. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know it. And, you know, and she was very interested in music. So she sort of so, – and I, that wasn't something that my house, you know, where I grew up, it was dark. There was no sound it was horrible. So, so to actually have that, um, I, I definitely learned a lot from her about music and, um, I would just go to the public library. I mean, I, I really thank them for the books that I would steal from them. Like I still have a, like a very early copy of Tarantula that says the Harrison public library on it, you know, that, that I lifted, uh, you know, I'm sorry. Cause I probably, you know, a couple of kids, might have enjoyed it and, and benefited from it. But I remember thinking that this was like this book I could not, you know, I could not relinquish. Um, so, yeah, the library, my friend Liz, and and that was pretty much it. But then if you want to get a little bit into the, the book, um, some of the horrible story of Quick Kills is very familiar to me. Um, how and so, not How so? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, – I mean, I think that the the emotional tenor of it is is very accurate. I think that, and I mean, I I can just say this because why not? But, um, you know, the, the 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 I would I mean, it really was an illegal relationship um, with a much older man. Um,
0: when when you were in high school
1: yeah is unfortunately quite true um and I think that was certainly um a byproduct of the, the house that I lived in and sort of feeling parentless and a whole other confusing set of things so um there's a lot of the story that is um is is i mean most of it is a novel, but um but some of it rings really true to me and that, you know, that character and that relationship pieces of it. Um, I mean, there are fragments of it, but, and so when you weave it all together, it's very different, but it does, it does come from something that I unfortunately know.
0: Yeah. Well, and and like how much older are we talking? Like you were, you're in high school. This is a guy in his twenties, thirties.
1: Yeah. Like I was like 50, and he was like
0: thirty-eight.
1: Ugh. Yeah, yuck. Right. Yeah. And my parents knew about it, you know, which is even more um, damning in a sense.
0: And they were. You they know, were. What did they? Th- what did they say?
1: Nothing. You know. It just. It just they just looked the other way. Wow yeah
0: horrifying isn't it yeah I mean but you know there's weird things that happen I remember in my uh, hometown there was a, a teacher dating a student and it was kind of an open secret and everybody knew it and they were like out on the town and people would, you'd see them out in public together and, wow. and, and like his parents knew he was the teacher and his parents knew and like would have her over and I was like is anybody going to just say that this is a little fucked up, or are we just going to go with this? <laughs> you
1: know, like... you know it, it, what's really amazing to me is i read many, many accounts before, or as before, probably before I was writing the book, um, about the abuse that went on in the Catholic Church, and it's a very similar sort of thing. Um, it, it, you know, parents not only knew, but some parents even felt that it was, it was, Somewhat of an honor that their son was chosen, because the priest was so important in in the community that that they looked the other way when they when, when there was any idea that it was something beyond just him taking an interest in their son. But but clearly they had to have known, and and it's it seems similar to me um, that that adults know stuff and they don't do anything, um, and I don't really understand why that is Um, but it certainly was very common when I was growing up and I I think the stuff that went on in the Catholic Church is kind of happening at the same time I mean I'm 56 so um, you know I have a feeling like the the, the victims are kind of my I mean there's many different ages but a lot of them are of of my age so I feel like it was the times um, and I don't understand how adults can do that sort of thing well
0: denial's um, powerful i mean denial is a, is a is a kind of a crazy thing and then there's just like kind of crude negligence and um yeah you know
1: it, it's, a- it's complicated but in my case it was probably a lot of
0: negligence too well i mean, but, and, well, and I, I don't know if this was the case with you but i'm thinking back to this particular relationship that uh you know from my high school years or whatever but there was kind of like the presentation of uh the thing being consensual I mean they were out together she was with them it looked it looked like they were a boyfriend and girlfriend, and she was happy and uh, I think that can sort of fool people who don't want to like think too much on it or get themselves involved right. or take some sort of stand that could um you know implicate them or put them in an uncomfortable position socially or otherwise and um, you know, but there's, you know, whatever surface level presentation might be happening, there's always a lot more to it with that kind of situation.
1: You know, and now that you're talking, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's also adults who know the sorts of things that they've done, don't want to condone somebody else doing something vaguely remotely similar. I mean, I, I don't know if that's accurate, but, um, but I, I just wonder if there's sort of like a, a, a silence of, and a complicity amongst them because, there are many people who have who were doing things like that at that moment in history, but I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean it's yeah. You never know what 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 people have going on behind closed doors or in their brains or whatever.
1: Yeah, those uh, brains. You don't want to go near those.
0: Yeah, brains are dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so you're in high school, you're having this relationship with an older man. Like, how did you, uh, how did it end? How did you get out of it? And how did you get onto the Ivy League and the Peace Corps? I mean, that's a, that's a good turnaround. Yeah, I,
1: I, I don't, I mean, I finally, as soon as I got out of the house, um, and as soon yeah, as soon as I got out of the house, and um, I went to Barnard, okay, and Barnard was like, it was, the antithesis of, of that. You know, it, it was very much... It was still it was still an only all-girls school. Um, it's co-ed now. Um, but... So that was really, I think, very important to me. And even though it was New York City and this person wasn't that far away, I, I think it was really becoming educated about what, what one could do with their own body and their own ideas, that one could actually... Stand up and, and have an opinion and, and and defend themselves and 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 respond to what was going on that they didn't like, which clearly wasn't how I grew up at all. Um, you know, we all just sat there when my father would rate. You know, go, you know, whatever he would do. Um, did, did he at but, least put Did he at least put you through school? No, which is really uh-huh. really.
0: I was I was I was giving him an opening to redeem himself a little bit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, there there isn't an opening. Um, no, and then later on in my early adulthood, my son was very sick, and um, we needed money badly. I mean, just it was really really dire. Um, well, what was wrong, what was
0: wrong with your son?
1: It took like five years and three years in and out of hospitals to finally figure it out. Um, and it was a very strange autoimmune disorder. He's actually fine now. He's, he's 25. Oh, good. Um, but it was very difficult for um, his middle school years. And I actually had to ask my parents for money, and they didn't give me any money. <laughs> wow. And it, was, you know, it wasn't like this was a difficult thing for them to have done. They definitely had the money. Damn. Which is, like, a really horrible visual.
0: Yeah, I mean, for a sick grandchild? Come on, man.
1: Do you want to hear that? This? This you, you know, you can edit this piece out, but it, but whatever. Um, I just remember it, and it's Thanksgiving. I always remembered it because he was in the hospital, and he was, like, direly ill. Um, and my parents were, like, on the way to, like, some Thanksgiving set in New York City. He was in the New York City Hospital and it was convenient to stop by and they sashayed in in their you know my mom in her fur and her you know her diamonds and stuff and um they stayed for like 5 or 10 minutes which was long enough um and they left but they were like walking through like the pediatric neurology floor smelling like you know Chanel perfume uh, I mean, I really hope you never have to see a pediatric neurology floor, but I mean it is the closest thing to hell um, that I can imagine I mean, they were completely completely conspicuous and embarrassingly in the wrong place. they didn't belong, they were right, you know, they yeah. should not have come. <laughs> right, right.
0: <laughs> I guess they knew themselves, but what about uh yeah? What about your mother? Like, was she like personality-wise any different from your father? Like, was there any more? I
1: think now that I look back on it, I think she was battered as well. You know, maybe not physically, but it was the same sort of. So, in a sense, I mean, I don't particularly give her much. Um, I don't, she's not she's not off the hook, but I do think that that, that she was very much under the sway of, of his um, shifting moods and and. I think that's a probably a very difficult way to live. Um, so she she just receded. Um, she didn't, which which is unforgivable, and I can't imagine that either. Um, but I do think she was probably a victim as well.
0: Right. So what about Barnard? You got to Barnard. You start to come out of your shell a little bit or get a, a better sense of yourself. Did you uh, Did you ever yeah. go to, Did you ever go to therapy or anything as a young woman?
1: No, I didn't until my like I, I didn't until my son finally got better, I had, like, you know, what is, I don't know what you would call it, but then finally I completely collapsed. And, and that's the first time I went to therapy. So that was probably, like, in my early 40s. And when you, uh, and
0: when you say completely collapsed, what does that mean?
1: Well, I was working as a lawyer um, at the time, and all I can remember, I mean, I was able to get my work done done. But I would have like, and I was in New Jersey. I was in a New Jersey law firm um, because it was closer to home and I had kids, little kids. Um, And I managed to get in for a 6 a.m. appointment um, and then I'd get to the office. And I remember, you know, sort of having to, in the drive back from the city to this office in New Jersey really trying to regroup. And and I guess I managed it, but I do remember sort of being in my office and, you know, really feeling like I didn't want to, I couldn't get out, I couldn't leave the office, even though I had to. Um, But I I did manage it. Um, And then, so I guess I was, as if I hadn't had to work, I probably would have been at home in bed moping or something. I mean, I was pretty devastated, but I did manage because I had to. I had to. Um, and devastated
0: get, by what? Like, were you going to therapy at this point, or were you just? No,
1: I think what happened is that you know, sort of. I don't. I, I, whatever it was in that happens in, to a parent going through that, and then when he was okay and, and we had sort of made it through. I think my whole life collapsed on me. I I wasn't having, you know, I I don't think it was a nervous, I don't know what a nervous breakdown is. I think that's a weird word. But whatever this nervous disaster was that hit me wasn't because of my son, wasn't about my son because he was really okay at that point. I think it was sort of the plowing through of all those years of him being ill and responses from the people that you would have hoped would have, Rallied for you and with you. I think that's when it came down on me the most um, about how hard it was where I grew up and 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 how horrible I felt about myself and you know just a million different things. But that's what made me realize it that the therapy wasn't about my son at this point. It was completely about reconciling. Um, the abandonment that I felt from my parents, and maybe it became very clear to me, because as a parent, you know, the last thing I could ever imagine was abandoning my son. You know, um, I mean, I didn't even leave the hospital. It was just like I can't even imagine. I, I just so so. I guess somehow the the break between what I had grown up with and what I knew was right. It was just the the, the chasm was just so great that that. I collapsed.
0: Well, and the other thing too, is you'd spent so many years, I'm I'm imagining while he was ill, focusing on him and like not really taking care of yourself.
1: Exactly. You know, and then
0: suddenly that uh, is removed and you're left with yourself and it's like, okay, now it's time to reckon.
1: Yeah. And you know, I think the thing of going to law school wasn't just all about my father, but it was about imposing a logical structure on my brain because I think I was very much afraid of it. If I were, if I hadn't forced myself to think logically I probably would have collapsed a lot earlier and I think that finally, um, and and law school was very good for me because it did help me to organize my my wayward mind Um, and then I realized that I was just pushing myself into the wrong box because having a wayward mind when you're free of, of of the fear um, is the best thing in the world. So I've been very happy since I collapsed, and my wayward mind, let my wayward want mind sort of you know chart my course for me. But I think my very very part, you know, the half that half part of my life was terrifying fear of confronting myself and and what had happened to me and where I had come from and. I mean, obviously, I didn't come from some horrible, horrible place. I, I was fed and clothed, and you know, I didn't live in in you know some community where my parents couldn't do that for me. But um, but I think I think that I was really armored against it, and then you know, my my son just sort of really broke me down and, and let me decide that life has a purpose that isn't to just sort of keep yourself intact and what do you really want to do for the next half of your life?
0: Wow. So yeah. And how many children do you have?
1: I have a son and I have a daughter. So, um, and it's the same thing with like, you know, the turtle and the tortoise, you need backup. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I like having two. but, um, yeah, so she's younger. She's four years younger.
0: Wow. That's great. And so did, did you feel like therapy worked for you?
1: You know, it did. I mean, it really did. Um, it, it took a long, long time, um, and it did. I mean, I, I think I really was able to focus on what was important, and, and really change my life to, to, to accommodate that. And I think I also was able to exorcise my 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 family so that it doesn't upset me. I mean, I can I can talk to my parents, and you know, everything's just well. You know, I'm, I, it'll be curious to me to see what happens when they die and all that such. But um, so they, they, don't they
0: So they're still alive.
1: Me. They're both still alive, so they don't upset me anymore, though. But so I definitely do feel that therapy did help me.
0: Well, I, I mean, but
1: I had very specific problems. <laughs> 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 it, it wasn't this sort of massive, unnamed, ethereal concepts running around. You know, they were very specific things.
0: Yeah. Well. So and then what about? Uh, I want to hear about the, the Peace Corps. And I want to hear about, you know, I guess you went to Columbia for law school. Is that right?
1: You no, know, I went to Fordham for law school. Oh, okay. um, I, I I was after Columbia. I, I got a master's in international affairs at Columbia, the so Barnard Columbia. And then I joined the Peace Corps, but I did apply to law school and I had gotten in. and I went to law school for one day and I just remember I had bought all the fucking books and they're like in this locker and i mean, this Jesuit school, and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? And I, I, I didn't even return the books. I just, like, left the locker. I, they're probably still sitting in the locker. And I just, you know, I just was like, I'm not doing this. And that's when I, um, I applied to join the Peace Corps. And um, the year that it, like, took for me to get a, posi- a placement, I worked as a paralegal in a huge New York City law firm, just doing translations. Um, and I just consolidated, you know, my absolute, the, the, that, that, was the perfect decision to have made. Um, and then the Peace Corps was glorious. I mean, it really was like the most fabulous experience of my life. And I was in Ecuador and, um, I had asked to be stationed in a very really remote area where they didn't speak Spanish and I got my wish. So I was like a seven hour bus ride from Quito um, you know, it's, it's 1980s, um, and at that particular moment, a lot of money had been earmarked from for AID for Nicaragua, but things kind of went south there for the U.S. government. And Ecuador looked like a fledgling democracy, so all this money came flooding in to AID Ecuador. What, and, what is AID? Oh, I'm sorry, it's the Agency for International Development, and it's funded. You know, it's this, this money that. Usually what it was doing in the eighties was building like roads and sewers in in what was the third world the the developing world so that all this money had been earmarked to go to to Nicaragua for some reason um and and then this you know the Sandinistas came in and, and this money um, was automatically you know rerouted and and it went to Ecuador maybe it was the next place on the on the telegraph system but Um, but, so I, so I tapped into this money and set up a factory in this indigenous, completely, um, cut off. I mean, they were geographically cut off by the Andes, um, area. And it was just the most glorious time of my life. Well,
0: and you, and you said, uh, you said that these people didn't speak, uh, they didn't speak Spanish?
1: Their men spoke a really rudimentary Spanish and, um, it was a time of like in in Catholicism. There were there were like liberation theologists running around, and there they were being countered by evangelicals. Um, so not far from where I was living, was like an evangelical mission, but they had actually transcribed the, the Quechua language, which was what they spoke in in the Andes, in actually in Peru and in Ecuador and parts of Bolivia but, but where I was so they had transcribed it into like a written language at this point so I got myself a nice evangelical pastor who tut- tutored me in, in Tachua um, but the men in the village spoke a really rud- rudimentary Spanish I think my Spanish still has like kind of weird stuff in it from from them but um, so I learned Tetua and I lived in this village there were no other Americans around um, and it was glorious. Wait, I mean, you you, you,
0: wait, you were the only person. you were the only American. I was own? the
1: only person, and then after like a while, some other people volunteer heard about like my remoteness and my my and and he migrated up and asked if he could like move into the village, and so he came in, and and the two of us set up this factory together. But so, um, so we we were we were actually living together at the time in a in a um. Like, It's a, a couille. is this huge, like, it's like a hamster, but they eat them. They, it's actually a delicacy, and it had been a couille barn. So um, that's where we were living. You know, we had a latrine, we had a solar shower. It was glorious.
0: Wow. That's a game. That, that's, that's a life changer.
1: A total life changer, you know, coming from Westchester, which is like, you know, this, this wealthy suburb. Um, so that was an amazing experience. And then I came home and I was like, well, how am I going to support myself? And so I worked for a year um, as a journalist covering um, Ecuador, Colombia, and Panama. It was like a arm of the economist at this time. So it was basically really just for um, businessmen who wanted to invest in these countries. So I basically did currency and <laughs> It's like, it's <laughs> it was like, dreadful. How do, how, do,
0: how do we exploit the natural resources of these
1: countries? Exactly. You know, it, was, it was really dreadful. And that's when I realized I can't make $19,000 a year for the rest of my life and live in New York. So I went back to law school um, and that was that trajectory.
0: And law school, was this at Fordham?
1: Yeah. Okay. And it was horrible. I hated every minute of it.
0: Yeah. I, I talked to a lot of people who did law school and who worked, you know, especially in the early years as a lawyer. and. Seems, no one likes it. Everyone seems to think it's pretty bleak.
1: It's very bleak. I mean, I, I yeah, it's very bleak. Um, and I did it like in a big law firm in New York City. And everybody's very, I guess they went into it because they really felt it. You know, they felt the need to make lots of money and they were interested in like corporate America and that thing. Hello? Yeah. Okay, you're there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. Um, and, um, so I didn't fit in even more so and then I actually got a, a fairly good law job because I quit and was back to making no money I worked for a community community development corporation in Newark, New Jersey um, and that was kind of interesting and then I worked um, later my last, my last legal job was not so bad either it was working um, for a big New Jersey firm and I got on this lucky assignment which was um, trying to repatriate the land in southern New Jersey to the Delaware Indians. I'm sure it was funded by, like, you know, a Donald Trump or something, but um, I, have, I basically spent a lot of time in, like, the courthouse piecing together old land records. I got to go to, like, North Dakota to, like, try to find the eldest tribal leaders because you would, like, prove lineage. Um, so it was that was fabulous, and then my son got sick, and I got back to work at that law firm, and I was stuck on like the port authority buses, like running like the, co- the contracts for them, and I was like, I got to get out of here.
0: Yeah. So then it was. So awful. that's when I left. That okay? So that's when you left, and you went to, to Jersey.
1: Well, yeah, and then you know I started writing. Okay. Yeah. That.
0: Let's talk about that. Like you, you made the pivot at some point and started making art. Like what, was that something that was always with you? I mean, obviously the books were always with you and reading was always a refuge, but like when when did you first start to entertain the idea that you might write one?
1: Well, the books were always with me. And I have to say that when I was in ninth grade, um, I, well, I was a photographer. I am a photographer. And when I was in ninth grade, um, the new school had, um, on its, uh, on its roster, um, Lisette Modell, who is the teacher of Diane Arbus, and I brought her my portfolio and she took me into her class, even though I was, like, really young. And that was the first time, because she was already very much towards the end of her life. She was already in her 80s and she had spent her life as an artist, and she was the first person that made me realize that you can live a life of art. And um, that was that I shelved, you know, and kept in the back of my mind. I took photographs for a very, very long time. Um, of what? And then I, um, many of them are um, not mostly sort of street photographs, but of, they're all of people and um, many of myself but not really myself, sort of marred images of myself. Um, So they were already sort of darkly lit. Um, And I spent a lot of time when I was in high school traveling in the summer. I would work like the first couple of months and then I would travel and I would take photographs. I would basically pick places where I wanted to make photographs. I went to Cuba um, one summer through like the Cuban Studies Center, which I don't know if exists anymore, but it was um, it was the first time that Americans were sent were allowed to go back, and it was a a group of people that were um, students and professors. That was the the guise of the trip, um, and that was pretty amazing, especially since I had already spent time. Um, I had I've been in Mexico and Guatemala, so I definitely. So that was part of it, and Lisette Model really helped me. So it was always in my mind that, that one could do this, and that I was squelching this talent, whatever what it was. Um, so, and then I also do think that as a parent, when you tell your child to to follow what makes them happy, you if you listen to your own words, um, that sort of that sort of finally made some sense to me, and I applied it to my own circumstances.
0: <laughs> You're like, hey, this is some pretty good advice. <laughs>
1: fabulous advice it really is I mean you you want to do what makes you feel like you're complete or you're doing something worthwhile or worthy or that makes you want to get out of bed or (laughs) that somebody else might see and understand and say wow I understand this I you know whatever it is um please do it
0: yeah, well, okay so and I get that and I get that and I think uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm totally on board with that but you also have to balance it against uh, being able to feed yourself and put a roof over your head because writing fiction is notoriously difficult when it comes to such things. So like exactly. are, you, are you still practicing law like do you have uh, do you have that that part of it figured out the practical aspect of life?
1: Well the practical of I did I, I kept looking part-time I was really quite lucky even as I was writing the first novel. I was able to keep working, you know, like three days a week. And because it was three days a week, people really left me alone to my three days a week. So I, it didn't extend over. Um, and that was pretty glorious because because I was clearly not interested in being a partner. I was just interested in doing my work and getting paid. And then I did that until um, like two, th- right before 2000, 2001. Um, my husband finally started making enough money, and I just said, do I have to keep doing this anymore? And he said, no. So I was really lucky that I have a benefactor.
0: There you go. That's the best yeah. way.
1: So remarry or I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, but,
1: it, but I think in a weird way that the balancing and, and all the other things that you have to do – even though it it might slow you down, as 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 an artist or a writer, I think it ultimately makes what you come up with that much richer because you are more in the world. And I I mean I'm to sure feel like this is just having a child that you know no matter how sapping it is, um and and you know soul sapping, emotionally sapping, economically sapping, um it does give you something that completely changes your view of how you perceive things and how you translate them in your work. And, and I think to write a book, you need a lot of time because you have to live with it and you have to raise it. And, and so having all these other things going on at the same time, almost maybe makes it easier to write.
0: That's an interesting perspective. And and the other thing that you say uh, strikes a chord with me, because I have this argument with friends of mine sometimes where uh, it could be. It's often about kids, like trying to like because they, they don't have kids. They're trying to decide whether they should or not. They're worried that it's going to like ruin their lives, um, you know, or, or change their lives in some way that they're not going to like. Or uh, I've all, I've had the same conversation about pets <laughs> since we started on that <laughs> note. But it's the same thing. I always think that uh, you get way more than you than you give. I mean, you have to give a ton, and like you say, it it saps you on so many levels when you're a parent or. Uh, when you're when you own a turtle, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but yes, um, but you know you get so much more uh, from them than you could ever possibly give, and I, I don't, I think that's an easy calculation, you know, in the yeah, end. Yeah, and
1: I think that's the wrong reason to not have children. The you know the, a more right reason to not have children is if you don't feel like you have the 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 capacity to love something. Right, and right. you know that's the question, not so much would take away from what I want to do, because absolutely it's going to take away from what you're going to want to do. Yeah,
0: or, but, or, or like if you just hate kids, like that's, that's yeah. Reason, you know, that's, I mean, that's a legitimate position. You just don't like kids, that's fine, you
1: know And people really don't. I mean the person in the department I'm in, you know she just doesn't like them, she can't stand them, um, doesn't have them, and you know, that's, that's fine. So, that's the reason not to have them if you don't really think you're going to gel with them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is a bad mix.
1: I mean, the other thing is the commitment component. You know, you can get divorced, you can get a job, but I mean, I guess you can abandon a child. I mean, but, you know, that's a really hard one.
0: Yeah, well, that's like, that's unthinkable to me, but like, people do it, I guess.
1: Yeah. It's very unthinkable. Um, but anyway, so, I mean, if you feel like you can't make that kind of commitment, then I probably think of dog is better. <laughs>
0: it's, it's a good starter. A lot of people do that. I mean, we kind of did that. You get a dog after you're married and then you graduate, you know, to the next level or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: so, okay. So, but you making the shift into writing fiction, like you, you know, you had the time to focus, uh, at least somewhat and you get into it. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but after all of you've been through and the work that you've done and all the books that you've read, like, did you find when when you finally had a, the chance to sit down and focus on art that it came easily, or did you have to really struggle with it? Or
1: I think it's really hard to write, no matter how many books you've read. Um, it took a long time. Um, I mean, it still takes a long time. But I still sit down and have, you know, it's a really long process. I definitely think I know now how to do it. It doesn't mean it comes any quicker but I think learning it um, was very difficult, even if you've been thinking about it, and you've been reading, and you've been looking and listening all your life, pretty adept, you know, with a lot of a lot of interest in things. Um, so no, it was a struggle. I mean, I think about my first draft of the book, of the first book, and it was like so bad that. that <laughs> You know, I, I, and I remember the poor person who had to read it and like, tell me that. Um, And, you know, it's brutal what you have to go through. It really is. Um, So no, I didn't come to it with any better advantage at all. I do think that, you know, photography makes me a very visual person. So I do frame things lots of times based on what I've, scene and like off a visual or a piece of art or a photograph and so I do think that the skill that I had doing that again translates into it somehow, kind of like what I was talking about with all the other ancillary things one does in their life kind of do form into this this stream that makes you be able to write or make art or do whatever it is you're doing. But um, the actual craft of sitting down and writing with very difficult to learn
0: okay so how did you like and discipline wise like how did you get into it did you like did you have like a routine or
1: yeah being a lawyer you really learn discipline and so i um i would go to the library for the first book i made myself go to the library all day like i i made it my job literally and if i wasn't writing i was reading that I would stay there for, you know, the seven, eight hours. And I did that for like a bunch of years. And then I, um, and now I don't have to be that religious about it, but I am very religious about it. You know, I, I write every morning no matter what. And um, and then by afternoon, if I'm tired of writing, I, I make myself read. Um, no, don't make myself because reading is a lot easier, but, um, I, so yeah, I spend most of the day now. Luckily, uh, I don't have to do anything else because the kids are gone. My husband doesn't live in the city, so, um, I'm completely reclusive and alone. So my whole day is reading and writing. It just doesn't have to be the eight hours sitting there because I'm not paying a babysitter.
0: Right, right. You can just go. (laughs) Uh, well, that's awesome, and you, you said your husband doesn't live in the city. So, like, are you guys well, like?
1: Well, he comes home on the weekends, which is really glorious for anybody who's trying to to after your kids leave, um, sort of right. Um, so, yes, I'm alone all week, which I think is you know really wonderful. But um, it's probably much harder for him, and um, and then he's home on the weekends. So, I uh-huh. generally. You know, I'll just generally, like, read on the weekends. I don't usually sit down and do anything. Okay, oh, that's not really true. I get up early still and work in the morning.
0: That sounds like a good arrangement, like a good writerly it, arrangement. Like, you know, people clear every, he clears out. You have the place to yourself all week to work and just get, like, totally lost in it. And then on the, yeah, the, on place, the, on the, on the weekend you have company.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. And what I was saying is that I let the place go to shit. You know, I don't even have to... I don't have to cook, I don't have to clean, I don't have to do anything. You know, there's just shit all over the place by Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and then by Friday afternoon, it looks kind of okay.
0: Yeah, I just live in filth and write. It's fantastic.
1: I It's great.
0: <laughs> wow. Okay, so I, I want to ask before uh, I let you go, I want to talk to you about, like, spiritual stuff, which I've been getting into with writers a little bit here and there on this show, because I think it's, a, I think it's relevant, you know, to how mm-hmm. people make their way in the world and to how people approach their work creatively, you know, because it can be a grind and there can be these big periods of difficulty and uncertainty and dread and, uh, you know, all the, all the stuff that comes with kind of making that leap. And particularly in light of, uh, you know, the difficulties that we've discussed regarding your childhood and, you know, family life and whatnot. Like, did you ever find yourself, uh, you know, digging into spiritual stuff as a way to make sense of the world?
1: Yeah. You know, it doesn't, um... I find it, well, the only kind of things that I've, it doesn't work for me. What does work for me spiritually, I think, is um, seeking out, you know, beauty aesthetically in, 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 in people, in places and I also very much, and I, maybe it's, I don't think it's just the Peace Corps. I think it's because of the way I grew up, which was, you know, material possessions and beauty were the only things that matter, physical beauty of a person by that, I mean. And um, so I do go back every year or every other year lately um, to Peru, and I'm a translator um, for doctors who do surgeries free of charge on kids who've never seen doctors, Um, in a hospital, like, remote, very remote in the desert in Peru. And I find that this is really spiritually um, my place because um, these kids are amazing and and they deserve to have somebody take care of them for a little bit of time. And and lots of times they're, you know, we can only do certain kinds of surgeries because we're not there very long. But um, in the Andes, because of the sun, um, there's um, lots of cataracts in kids' eyes. So we have kids that come in, they're blind, and like the next day after the surgery, they open their eyes and they can see, and it, it really is like a spiritual thing um, for them and for their families. So I do that all the time when I can, um, and the other thing I do um, spiritually is I, I do work with um, a, an organization in New York called Girls Right Now, and it's a it's a mentor-mentee program, for um girls lots of them are homeless, lots of them have foster care um, trying to make their way um, who actually can really write and so I have a I have a mentee every year and I meet with her once a week and, and work we work on things together and the only other spiritual thing I can think of that I do is I really do love going to places that are like in the middle of nowhere um, where you can see the sun and you can see the stars and you wake up you know with the sun you go to bed if, when the sun sets. Are you uh, talking like camping? Not camping, I, but but like when we my my, bro, my son has actually been coming with me to Peru for a long, long time now. So when we go, um, we go to like a really remote part of the desert afterwards and just sort of like recover. There's nothing there, um, but like basically the the sand and the color of the sand and um, occasionally like a, an odd oasis. Um, Where do you we, stay? We stay in remote places., well, there's like a convent we've stayed in once. Um, we've once sort of commuted from a, a kind of dingy like hotel place in like a little bit of a town. Um, um, so we've done that, and um, I would really like to keep doing that. I mean, I would love to go to like some places. Well, he's actually going to be probably in South America next year. He's, he's a PhD candidate. So I am like dreaming of visiting him and going to like the Atacama uh, Desert, maybe dragging him to Easter Island, um, where there's like very little of anything. So that's kind of my my spiritual hope for the future. Atacama, Easter Island.
0: You could do like a uh, mother son uh, ayahuasca ceremony in the Peruvian exactly. jungle. <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> uh, but that's cool though. So nature, but there's no God. Like you're not. Do you have no God or, or any kind of like tradition? Really-
1: I don't. I think the God that exists is within one of us here walking around, which is why we try to do our best because this really might be the only God that there is. Just
0: or this is like the only heaven. Is that what you're saying? Like this is it? This is. Well,
1: I'm, I'm just saying that the the, the 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 what one can give to a kid in Peru or what one can give to a kid in New York that might be their only God because I'm not really sure there is a God so. I don't perceive. I'm not saying I'm the God, but I'm just saying that that in the the good acts that we do and in the way in which we comport ourselves, hopefully we bring something um, to the world that makes it a place that people want to be in. Um, that's about as spiritual as I can get.
0: Uh, I, I think that sounds good. I, I'm a big fan of uh, actions as opposed to. I belief. wish
1: I believed in God. I mean, that would be really simple.
0: It would make things easier.
1: <laughs> it would be wonderful. <laughs>
0: yeah i I, just, I say that to myself a lot uh but I think that uh you know put putting your highest ideals or whatever in action and trying to act on them is a noble thing to do and and maybe too rare you know to get out there and to try to help people and I don't know
1: i, I admire that but I think we all try even in small ways, you know when you're not mean to the person that you want to kill the it's a, a dwayne Reed um <laughs> you know it, it's so much better to treat people well. Um, when, you re- so when, like- you,
0: when you refrain from uh, assault and battery at Dwayne Reed, I think that is,
1: that is a spiritual act. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> it is, it is, you know, and it's funny, too. I, you, you say that and I think of like being in traffic or I think of uh, bad neighbors or uh, just, you know, interactions in the street. It is as much as I like to think of myself as like a peace loving, you know, uh, human being who's fairly mild mannered. Uh, it, it's within me. Like I could, there can be that like moment internally where it's like, "You motherfucker!" Like, I mean, and then it, oh, you, yeah. you don't act yeah. on it, but you're like, "Sometimes I notice it." And I'm like, "Damn, that's scary that that's like even there." Uh, and how quickly it right. comes, how quickly it comes up, despite the fact that I think I've got it tamed or something, you know?
1: It, exactly. So when we tame our worst, you know, behaviors, I think we're doing something spiritual. I actually really do mean that. Well, I, I, mean, I know you're sort of being silly, I'm sort of silly and not silly. <laughs>
0: No, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm, yeah, I'm doing yeah. both, I'm doing both, but you know, it makes me want to come full circle because, you know, when you were talking about your dad and, the kind of alcoholics temperament without necessarily the alcoholism and the anger, it's just, it's, it's anger and I we, think all have it. we all have it, but I think men, you know, tend to have it worse. Like male anger is a particularly ugly brand. Let's just put it that way. And, um, whatever, you know, whatever you want, you know, whether it's a rage thing or anger or it's just, uh you know, being mean, uh, however it comes out, like that's a thing that needs taking yeah. care of, taking care of. And I don't mean taking care of like, uh, like put a bullet in its head, <laughs> taking care of, mm-hmm. I, I mean, taking care of like nourishing it. Like you nourish a child, like it needs to, we need to find a way to address that within ourselves. Because I think when you don't, then it spills out and it, it you wind up harming other people.
1: Right. Also, I think it's a selfish spirituality because If you refrain from really throttling the person you want to throttle, you yourself will feel better once you get over the anger like 20 minutes later. um, After you've gone through the monologue in your head of all the good things you could have said that you didn't say. (laughs) (laughs) Once you get past that point, you've actually done yourself a very big spiritual favor by protecting yourself from from that horrible anger that you possibly could have unleashed that would have taxed you also.
0: Oh, man. There's nothing worse than like acting on that anger or saying something bad. Uh, and then after it's done, the hangover, and just the feeling shitty, and the guilt, and the, it's the Oh, worst.
1: the hangover. The hangover's so bad. So bad.
0: You think it's going to feel good, and it just feels terrible.
1: <laughs> no. Yeah. No. I mean, I just reamed my, my son yesterday, and I was like I'm guilt-ridden all day. All day. Yeah, all day.
0: Would you like to publicly apologize to him on the show? <laughs> 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 I give you the floor.
1: No, that's, Barnett, I'm really sorry I held at you <laughs> bloody thing for the brazilian consulate i'm sorry Bar- Bar- <laughs> i'm just not organized and he's like really you know organized and he can't get deal with me
0: yeah that's I mean, my wife's not organized and i'm so i'm sort of an organized person and i just it's a different like it's a different breed of cat you know like it's, it's okay.
1: hard you know sometimes
0: yeah some people can do that like she can she can get all of her shit done but like it's sort of like haphazard, and I'm I'm more orderly, I think, and it just makes yeah. me, it makes me. A, and when
1: you're looking for something in a rush, it it really sucks to have like a general idea where it is. <laughs> right, right. Anyway.
0: So, what's next for you? You got another book cooking, or?
1: I'm just really working hard on short stories, which I find absolutely very, very. I don't know why I find them. I think that. I'm thinking maybe, so I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to write good short stories, and um, I I haven't yet figured out how to do that. And I think in a strange way legal writing is actually getting in the way because you have to be very concise, you have to be very specific, and you have to be very brief. And and I'm feeling as though I somehow get too logical with them. So I haven't figured it out, and I'm not sure if it's a craft thing or if it's a, a mental thing. It's probably both.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted, the word math comes to mind. There's some sort of mathematics to a short story, but it's that might, thought. yeah, I don't know. That could be totally wrong. I, I'm just pulling, pulling things out of the air.
1: <laughs> well, I could definitely hang my hat on that because I can't add. So maybe that's going to add up to why I can't do one.
0: <laughs> or, you know, but I think too, it's like a lot of just whittling, you know, you have to have that big yeah. block and then just like pare it down and pare it down to where you get the thing, you know, because it is such a compressed form, so.
1: The com- yeah the compression's rough but anyway
0: well I wish you well with it it's been super fun talking with you and uh, I congratulate you on all your success and uh, I don't know just have a lot of admiration for all that you've overcome and, and what you're doing now so uh, I wish well, you well well thank you
1: so much and when you come to New York come up I'll, I'll take you to the um, see the tortoise
0: okay but I, you know, I don't want to intrude upon your solitude I feel like you no
1: no the tortoise would love it the bird would love it okay. and the, yeah definitely let okay. me know
0: okay take care Lynn
1: alright bye bye
0: Okay, guys, there you go. That's Lynn Lurie. Her novel is called Quick Kills. It's out there now from Etruscan Press. Go get that and uh, go check out more about Lynn Lurie at lynnlurie.com, lynnlurie.com. That's her website. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the good music as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app. This podcast has its own free official app. It's free. Did I say that it's free? You have an iPhone? Get the free app. You have an Android? Get the free app. It's the best and easiest way to listen to this show. You get the app on your device, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free. You can stream them, you can download them to listen to. If you're not near Wi-Fi, you know you can be offline and listen. You can favorite your favorite episodes. It's very user friendly. And then from there, if you want to stream the full archives, you sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very cheap. 75 cents a month for a year. It's that cheap. It's a good gift idea. Uh, another good gift idea, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Go to the nervousbreakdown.com, click on book club in the menu bar, give the book nerd in your life a book a month. It's only $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a book. Get a new book delivered to your uh, loved one's door every 30 days. Great deal, sincerely. Go to the nervousbreakdown.com to learn more. If you want to email me, the address is letters at other letters at other Tell me stories, tell me about weird coincidences in your life accidental verbal puns of cosmic significance that you witness in a grocery store in the dead of night anything like that anything along those lines i want to hear about it send word so you know i'm getting it i'm getting it together slowly but surely i didn't realize how much this move was going to take out of me like maybe i'm getting old i don't know maybe i've just accumulated more shit over the years which made it harder you know Feel discombobulated And then it's the holidays The holidays make you feel discombobulated It's kind of a double whammy It's a weird time to move So much shit happening at once Plus we're in this house We don't have enough furniture So it feels sort of empty It's very odd We'll get it figured out It just takes time Just gotta bear with me As I, you know, get get my life sorted out Slowly but surely Please remember that Renoir was impoverished well into his 40s and that Anton Chekhov died in Germany and that his coffin arrived in Moscow on a freight car labeled Oysters. That's it for... (laughs) Oh man, that's bleak. I don't mean to laugh at Chekhov or at the circumstances of anyone's death, but there's some dark humor in that, right? Oysters? By the way, oysters are are gross. I know they're an aphrodisiac. I know they're sort of a trendy, uh, high-protein dinner for people who are watching their weight or whatever but it's just snot it's cold salty uh you know oceanic snot what the fuck are you doing what are we doing with this as a delicacy did you know that lobster used to be a prison food back in the day do you ever read consider the lobster i think that's where i get that from used to be a prison food it's a giant sea bug it's like a goddamn insect it's got claws it's disgusting looks like an alien it's a delicacy. You're overpaying for it. You're dipping it in butter. What the hell is going on? So I think that's it for now. I don't know what else to say. I'm freezing cold. I think... Uh, do I sound ornery? I'm a little ornery. It's just... It's rainy in Los Angeles. That sort of throws me. Though we need the rain. This is, this is how uh, infantile I am emotionally. And how uh, infantile Los Angelinos are. We're in the midst of a uh, historic, like, millennial record drought, and uh, we're finally getting rain, and now everyone's complaining about the rain. That's it. It's rained three times in two years, and it's already enough. And yet, if we don't get the rain, we're going to die. The entire place. (laughs) We're going to have to desalinate the ocean. People want convenience. I got to stop complaining. That's what I need to do. New Year's resolution. Stop complaining. Just grin and bear it. Everyone's in a big struggle. Everyone's struggling. That's the name of the game.